Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, Black and Queer on Campus, Michael P. Jeffries argues that African-American and LGBTQ plus college students often have to struggle to find safe spaces and a sense of belonging when they arrive on campus at both predominantly white institutions and historically black colleges and universities. His book is published by New York University Press and brings Professor Jeffries to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, you begin your book by writing about Vice President Kamala Harris. Why her? Uh, well, she's the uh, first black woman vice president, and she's an HBCU graduate. Uh, that's ah. not insignificant. And of many of the elected H- officials you that should, we've You seen, should say what HHSBC stands for so we can just use it from now on. That's right. She's a graduate of a historically black college and university. More specifically, she's a graduate of Howard University in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., um, and she's also, if you look at her record, one of the uh, strongest elected officials we have when it comes to uh, LGBTQ issues. For instance, she was the first vice president to march in the Pride Parade in Washington, D.C. Uh, her record as a lawmaker in California is also pretty strong on several LGBTQ plus issues. And the point is, right, that when she talks about why and how she became the public figure that she has become, she has consistently talked about the role that Howard University played in her development. And the reason that's important is there's a stereotype, right, of a kind of uh, backward or virulent homophobia within the black community. And if that were really true, right, how could it then be that Howard University had such an important influence on Kamala's career and she ended up in the place where she did when it comes to LGBTQ advocacy? So that's why I kind of start with that story to, to, to show us all these kind of stereotypes of black homophobia really need to be unpacked because uh, they're not true and they're damaging in a whole lot of ways. Black homophobia generally uh, blamed on Christian religious values. Yes, I think that's part of it, but it doesn't often get framed as a predominantly religious issue. I think that many times it gets framed as a sort of black cultural issue where there's something pathological about black culture Uh, that just leads to disproportionate hatred toward LGBTQ folk. And I think what we need to understand is that emphasis on black homophobia is really misdirection. It points our attention away from the true reasons that we have so much inequality and homophobia in this country. And those reasons really are institutional. We have a long history in the medical field. Uh, We have a long history in government when it comes to the laws. So those are the real places we should be looking if we want to truly understand homophobia rather than rather than sort of pinning it on one racial group. Although you're black, you are cisgender, uh, the, uh, an author who's the dean of econo- academic affairs at Wellesley College. Uh, did you feel that the students you interviewed were comfortable discussing these matters with you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, you never really know because... Um, everyone is going to feel differently when they meet you for the first time. These are not students that I had long relationships with. I traveled to 13 different campuses around the country and and talking to the people who are in the book. So you never really know how people are going to react to you. But I think that I did have a couple of things that sort of put them at ease. Um, One, um, 
I had some experience, I have some experience working on a college campus. So I, I really have a sense of the rhythms and the day-to-day -day experiences of all college students. And I had plenty of experiences of my own with queer black folk in my classes that I could sort of draw upon. Uh, and two, you know, I, I think just, though I'm not uh, a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I am black. And that, that kind of status mm -hmm. really kind of provided at least a, a, a solid common ground for us to begin our conversations, especially when it came to issues of race and politics. You interviewed 65 black LGBTQ students across the country, 40 from nine different historically black colleges and universities, and 25 from predominantly white institutions. Well, we like to think of colleges as universe and universities as enlightened places. Are some better than others? Oh, no question. And it doesn't break down very neatly. It's not as if all predominantly white universities or institutions are one way and all HBCUs are another way. There really is tremendous diversity across these categories. Uh, but there's no question that, you know, just the way our country, just like the way our country has different uh, politics based on region, uh, the, the geographical location, the institutional history of these schools sets kind of different cultural contexts for the students who go to live and study at them. So there are some some real differences. They don't always break down along racial lines, but there's tremendous diversity in the student experiences that I encountered. What sorts of problems did they report? How wide a range was it? Well, I think there are a few a few key areas to point out. It, it might be best to maybe start with the students at HBCUs because that's when most mm -hmm. of our conversation has been focused on so far uh, with reference to Kamala Harris, et cetera. Uh, and when I spoke with these students, they didn't really report uh, a sense of, again, uh, virulent, overly dangerous homophobia on their campuses. What they talked about, though, was a sense that the institutions that they attended could be doing uh, a lot more to support them than they are. So uh, they pointed to uh, what they perceive as an absence of black queer role models, either on the faculty, on the staff of this campus. They talked about um, maybe not having enough classes in the curriculum that dealt with the kind of topics that they were interested in. They talked about lack of support for student organizations, a sense that there wasn't really a great deal of effort to increase the visibility of queer black students on these campuses. Uh, during the recruitment process, uh, the lives and experiences of queer black students really weren't emphasized or pointed out uh, when they went on their campus visits. So in Did all they try to hide them? Did they try well, to hide I, their sexuality? The, the students didn't put it in those terms. And I think when it comes to hiding uh, their own sexuality on campus, uh, every, every person in the book talked about that in a little bit of a different way. Um, some students, um, these, these are all students who identify as LGBTQ plus publicly in some way, because the way that I was able to connect with them was through LGBTQ plus organizations. So I didn't speak with any students who just didn't identify that way at all. But I think it's situational. I mean, there are some cases where they would enter social spaces and they wouldn't feel as comfortable talking about that part of themselves. And then in other social situations, they'd be far more comfortable. You report that they often struggle to find safe spaces and a sense of belonging when they arrive on campus at both predominantly white institutions and HBCU schools. Yeah, yeah, and I think that this is a good chance to talk about the predominant the students at predominantly white institutions because uh, those institutions um, 
often profess, according to students, to have a strong commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, but their experiences on campus didn't really reflect, didn't really reflect a strong commitment from the administration. Um, they felt that while there were uh, some student groups, for example, dedicated to LGBTQ plus issues and led by LGBTQ plus students, uh, those organizations weren't always welcoming to black queer mm -hmm. students because uh, they usually had white leadership that either didn't connect with them culturally or saw black queer students more as tokens than as sort of full-fledged members of the community who were capable of leadership and agenda setting within the group. Um, and I think that on those campuses, uh, the day-to-day -day experiences with racism also really shaped their experiences in ways that they just didn't shape their experiences at HBCUs. So when I talk about the inability to find space that these, that these folks described in the book, there really is kind of an overlapping or intersectional dimension to uh, the problems they face. It, sometimes it was more along the lines of race, sometimes it was more along the lines of sexuality and gender identity, and sometimes uh, these things combined and intersected to produce really particular experiences. And didn't some say they uh, felt pressured to temper their criticisms of racism among their white peers? Yes, that's right. I mean, I think that in some of these student groups that are really supposed to be dedicated toward queer issues, um, there wasn't a sense among the students who belonged to them or perhaps attended some of the meetings that they did that they were entitled to uh, criticize the group for its own kind of racial biases or to make racial justice more of an agenda item for the group as a whole. It really felt to them like race was a secondary at best issue in those spaces. What about when they're in predominantly straight black social spaces? Don't they say they often feel ignored or pressured to minimize their sexual identity in order to be accepted? Yeah, I think that was a common refrain uh, that I heard among students in my book. And it wasn't uniform among every student that I spoke with. But there was a sense that on white camp, on predominantly white campuses, that have formed uh, strong uh, black student unions, for example, or strong black cultural groups. Those cultural groups are really designed, right, to emphasize uh, issues of racial identity. And then when the queer black students enter those spaces, they never really felt like the things they wanted to talk about were the priorities in those spaces. They felt like they had to downplay their identity or not talk about queer issues nearly as much if they wanted to fit into the black cultural spaces. And this is something that I heard um, you know, before I started writing the book with various students I encountered. And it's something that I heard uh, throughout my conversations with the students who are in the book. What factors do black LGBTQ plus uh, kids consider when they're deciding whether to attend a predominantly black or white school? It's really interesting because um, the factors that young people are considering when they go to college are, are pretty consistent. They look at things like cost. <laughs> Right. Hmm. That's not a trivial consideration these days. Uh, geography. Most people go to school uh, relatively close to uh, to where they have lived their whole lives, although that is changing. And of course, the geographical question overlaps with cost because oftentimes state institutions have reduced tuition uh, for people who are in state residents. And then prestige would be the third major factor. Right. So uh, a kind of perception of the school's prestige. Did you have a did you have a comment? Well, I was thinking that perhaps somebody in Florida 
might have second thoughts these days yeah. because of the current political situation, whereas five years ago they might have felt differently about going to a school in I think Florida. that's something that many of my colleagues will be studying beginning now, right, because some of the things that are happening in Florida are, are really quite troubling in terms of the curriculum and just the overall climate. Uh, but, but when I spoke with the students in the book, they didn't really talk about uh, regional climate or political climate of the state as something that they had considered. And they also, very interestingly, didn't say a whole lot about, well, I was looking for evidence of like a healthy LGBTQ campus on the culture. Now, maybe they didn't tell me that because they didn't want to, or, or maybe they just really weren't looking for it. I'm inclined to believe that it just wasn't something that they were considering all that strongly. However, when I talked to students who attended HBCU, ended up attending HBCUs, one of the things they pointed to were all the different types of black folk who attended these schools, the diversity of blackness that they saw on campus. And that notion, right, that there's a kind of richness of black diversity on these campuses allows for the presence and the visibility of black LGBTQ folk to become more of a factor for students who are considering HBCUs. So although it didn't come out as, uh, I would say, one of the main threads in their decision-making process, I have to believe that in looking for black diversity, they're looking for diversity that includes queer folk as a visible and valued uh, piece of the community on campus. What would be some of the other examples of black diversity? Oh, well, certainly black socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. right? I mean, socioeconomic status would be one of them. Um, uh, regional well, diversity, mm -hmm. uh, ethnic diversity. Where the person diversity. came from. Whether right. the, uh, the economics of their family, obviously. That's right. Socioeconomic class, uh, the regional diversity, ethnic diversity, mm -hmm. uh, you know, students who uh, have family backgrounds and family histories that are kind of, of di different national or religious origins. Uh, and then I think just diversity, more broadly speaking, of kind of styles and, and personality. I mean, I think this is something that's really valued at HBCUs, and it's one of the reasons those institutions are so uh, productive for black students who attend them. What are some of the uh, more notable HSBCUs? The, How some of the more, some of the more notable HBCUs yeah. uh, in the country. Well, uh, I can't talk about the ones, all, all of the places that I visited in my book because uh, I use pseudonyms for all of those places. Mm -hmm. But I think one school that's been in the limelight quite a bit is one that we've already mentioned, uh, Howard University. Mm -hmm. uh, not only because of its uh, history with Kamala Harris, but uh, also the home that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and ta Coates have found for their work at Howard. So that's a school that has received a great deal of publicity in, in the in not too distant past. And then, of course, there are historic institutions like Morehouse and Spelman down in Georgia. Uh, yeah. So there are a whole bunch. You know, there are roughly 100 HBCUs in the country today. So, of course, there are the names that we know very well. And there are so many others that folks don't normally think of. Mostly in the South? Yes, they are located primarily in the South, although historically there have been a number of schools in the Midwest as well and the I'm Atlantic Northeast. Yeah. I'm speaking with Michael P. Jeffries about his latest book, Black and Queer on Campus, from New York University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Do um, some of the students at the historically black colleges and universities feel they have to downplay their sexuality to be accepted by members of their own race? Uh 
Some do, but I don't think that sense of, first of all, again, it's important to note, the students I spoke with are students who are already comfortable, in some respect, identifying as LGBTQ, right? They had so, already come out. Well, well, yeah, they had already identified as, as, as LGBTQ. So, so I, I'm, I didn't have the opportunity, really, to speak with folks who are more hesitant to talk about their gender and, gender and sexuality, right? The, the, the way that I was able to get in touch with the students I did were through uh, student organizations, and you have to kind of sign up, and I, you know. So, so it's, it's hard for me to say, you know, what the kind of typical experience is, because I was only able to speak with people who, I, but, but even for those students, right, I, I think there's a sense that, um, you know, there, there are moments when they just feel it's easier socially um, to leave that thing unsaid or to downplay uh, their their gender identity or sexuality, uh, both on campus and off campus. Uh, so yeah, that's that's not an uncommon occurrence, but I don't think it's a situation where, uh, for the people that I spoke with, they felt like they were constantly hiding it as they went about their business. Well, is the process of coming out different if they're at a predominantly black or white school? It's a good question. Um, I, I don't think I would draw a bright line between the two. You know, these these questions of, of coming out are often really tricky because I think we have an idea of coming out in our head as sort of like a one-time announcement, right? This notion mm -hmm. that, well, you announce your sexuality and gender identity once, and then you are quote-unquote out, and that's the end of it. But in reality, we, we know that this process is, especially for black folk, a much more gradual process. There are often steps forward and steps backward. Um, this notion that you have to be explicit about it all the time in order to tell people about it has been challenged by a lot of the literature on this subject. So uh, I think that the notion of coming out as this one-time announcement is something that has never really applied to many people of color and black folk in particular. So so that's that's one of the things that makes this conversation so complex and so interesting because there are so many possibilities when it comes to not coming out but being welcomed into an LGBTQ plus community. Weren't you told that when they're viewed as desirable by their white peers, gay black students sometimes feel that they're fetishized for their black sexuality? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, we we understand that the stereotype of a kind of dangerous and exciting black sexuality has deep historical and racist roots in this country, right? From the, uh, the, the stereotype of uh, the, um, the, the Jezebel um, during the time when black people were enslaved to the stereotype of the myth of the black, rap uh, myth of the black rapist as a trope that has been uh, put forward over and over again in American cultural production. Um, so this is not unique to LGBTQ plus black folk. Uh, but what I heard from the students in the book was uh, that yes, that oftentimes when they kind of entered the dating market and were looking for partners, the uh, situations that they encountered were that people were already working with stereotypes in their head about how they should perform their gender identity, how aggressive they should be sexually. Uh, the notion that they had been sort of cast as exotic sexual people, exotic sexual figures uh, by potential partners who were of different races. And that was deeply frustrating uh, for the, the students that I spoke with. They say that sometimes they feel tokenized. That's right, yes. Either tokenized as 
kind of examples of uh, a kind of dangerous and exciting lifestyle or tokenized as proof for the white folk who interacted with them as like proof that the white folk couldn't be racist because look at my black partner or look at my black friend, right? Uh, or our organization doesn't have any problems with race because we have a few black members, right? That's what I kind of meant by the process of tokenization. Well, sometimes the having a black partner is a form of racism, isn't it? Well, it can be. I mean, look, I, I think that every social relationship has to be taken on its own terms. But what we have seen, mm -hmm. right, is that the fact of intermingling with another racial or ethnic group in and of itself, interacting with them, whether as a coworker, as a partner, as a, a, a player uh, 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 on a sports team, a teammate, uh, none of that, none of that status in and of itself absolves anyone from the possibility of bias or prejudice or racism. So we just need to be careful when we think about what intimacy uh, means, right? Intimacy does not mean anti-racism. Does it matter whether the person we're talking about is male or female? Do lesbians get treated differently by their peers? Yeah, males. so so I think that oftentimes when we think of the stereotype of a kind of exciting or, or dangerous stereotypical black sexuality, we go to the figure, the racist myth of the, the black male rapist. But hmm. for the, many of the students I talked to uh, for the book, um, they reported uh, some kind of similar stereotypes coming up against uh, them when they were sort of expected to be the more aggressive partner uh, in a relationship. Uh, there were also stereotypes that played out not just uh, strictly by racial category, but uh, according to skin tone. So that is uh, lighter skinned folk were often, were often assumed to perform a more sort of submissive role in the relationship than darker skinned folk were, whether, they're, whether we're talking about uh, men, women or non-binary folk who are in a relationship. So all of these stereotypes of dangerous black sexuality continue to play out across the sexuality and, and gender spectrum. The New York Times reports that about 60% of undergraduate teaching faculty identify as liberal or far left compared to with about 12% who identify as conservative or far right. What role do teachers play in this process? Well, I, I think that there's a mix. I, you know, the students in the book uh, talked a whole lot about uh, some of the support that they had found um, in the classroom, right? They, some, so many of, our, of the students talked about uh, uh, faculty who had been supportive uh, to them. On the other hand, uh, there were other students who felt like faculty just uh, didn't get it, uh, weren't willing to learn, weren't willing to, to really engage with questions of proper terminology, like gender pronouns, for example. Uh, uh, weren't really listen, weren't really willing to, to listen to uh, criticisms around pedagogy, the sense that these students could be tokenized in class in many of the same ways, that was a pervasive uh, element of it. And I think, you know, another piece of this is that there was a sense that there really just weren't enough offerings academically that would really speak to these experiences. You know, colleges and universities often have women's gender and sexuality departments that offer courses around these, around these topics. But uh, within those fields, uh, the treatment of race and racism hasn't always been uh, what it should be. So there needs to be a lot more work in including uh, the voices of uh, scholars who have worked specifically not only on sexism or women's history or feminism, but uh, black queer politics, black queer identity, 
and black feminism. And I think that the more uh, that part of the curriculum can be emphasized, the more at home many of these students will feel. Because that's what they're searching for, just like so many of our other students, looking for things that help them understand their own place in the world. Uh, and part of their place in the world is reckoning with and wrestling with their gender and sexuality. Well, the history of black people in this country is now uh, a, become a political issue in many states, uh, but that's generally in uh, in schools, in public schools, right, and, and not in colleges. Or has this extended to colleges as well? Do some schools have historically built-in racial biases? Well, I think, you know, the attack on uh, so-called critical race theory in the state mm -hmm. of Florida, for example, there have been a number of professors at the Texas university. as well. Yeah, yeah who have already spoken out about the ways that has influenced their careers and the choices they have to make in their classroom. So no question uh, that, you know, the, the history of uh, black Americans in this country reveals a number of truths, right? Not only about black American experiences, but about what the history of American empire actually entails, <laughs> uh, how the country has functioned as a democratic experiment uh, since its founding, who has been ex excluded from that experiment uh, for the longest time, right? And I think that all of those things are going to be politically fraught, uh, whether you're talking about uh, elementary education, middle school, high school, uh, or college university uh, education. So uh, yeah, I think at the college and university level, we have uh, 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 this great principle of academic freedom that can insulate us, uh, fortunately, from many of the kinds of um, political maneuvers that we've seen very recently. But nevertheless, right, it's it's it can always feel um, risky to talk about difficult and the, the difficult and dangerous history of this country when it comes to black folks experiences. On the other hand, uh, can this uh, going to college be seen as uh, a liberating experience for some uh, of these people? For example, we mentioned that black communities tend to be uh, at least, uh, well, I don't know if they tend to be, but they're rumored to be more homophobic because of conservative Christian values. And I'm wondering about whether some of these young people coming to school already feel alienated because of lack of understanding and even total rejection by their families. Yeah, I think that's, you know, look, I think the first thing to say is for so many students, no matter how they identify, coming to college is such a liberating experience. Being able to, if you're going to a residential, a residential college that's away from the place where you grew up, you are able to almost, you know, come in with a kind of a clean slate, right? Uh, not weighed down by your kind of family's expectations for you uh, as, a social, as a social being. You may have a whole host of other responsibilities and connections to your family, but there really is an opportunity to express yourself away from home in ways that are just different. Uh, and yes, so many of the students that I spoke with in the book talked about exactly that, that you know, this was the first time they were able to go away from their family and really uh, start to experiment and question uh, who, who they were and how they wanted to act. Uh, and it wasn't that they had a kind of fully formed identity that they had just been hiding and then they were going to perfectly enact it when they got to college. College is a space where young people continue to develop. Right? Many young people arrive at college at age 17, 18 years old. Uh, there's an exploration that happens and it's a valuable space for, for precisely that reason. And, and once that 
Once that exploration happens, one of the most important things that I found in the book was the possibility of finding friends at college who were going through some of the same things that you were, that they might mirror some of your experiences, they might echo some of the experiences that you've had. These are opportunities that so many students just didn't really have before they went away to college. And once they got to college, they started having them more and more. And that really enabled a kind of bonding and value on the friendships they formed. That's really quite special. Are they what are called friendship networks? Yes. I mean, and I don't want to use that in a kind of scientific or technical sense, but absolutely. I mean, the friendship networks that uh, we form at college are so important. Some of them become formalized, right? Like if you think about alumni networks or alumni networks in colleges and universities. Um, but also, you know, you're just meeting people from outside of your most immediate social sphere, right? People from outside your hometown. Um, and those networks are especially important for black LGBTQ folk who many times didn't really belong to what they would call a community of LGBTQ folk, didn't identify as part of a group of LGBTQ folk that they knew within their home time. But when they get to college, they have a chance to really identify as part of a group that has a much more uh, solid degree of kind of solidarity than before they go to school, before they go to university or college. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is an anthem. This is our call. This is our response. This is an anthem. This is our call. This is our response. This is an anthem. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Michael P. Jeffries. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, his book, Black and Queer on Campus. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number two, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Michael P. Jeffries, his book, that we're discussing is Black and Queer on Campus from NYU Press. Press. He is Dean of Economic, uh, Academic Affairs, Class of 1949, Professor of, in Ethics and Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College, the author of a number of books. How many books? This is my fourth book. Ah, the fourth. And you've, of course, also published essays and works of criticism. You may have read them in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Boston Globe, etc. Um, now, we're talking about all of this in the time of, of a lot of political turmoil, uh, the, the, uh, the time of Black Lives Matter, of, of uh, MAGA politics, Donna, President Donald Trump. And uh, the fallout from that. How important you were doing these interviews during the the time that time, weren't you? Were yes, politics, I was. Yep. Politics at the forefront of their thinking in many cases. Yes, it, it was, and you know, I think that I went into the conversations expecting the students 
to want to talk about politics because it was such a fraught time, because uh, people of color were being attacked and white supremacy was on the rise, because LGBTQ folk were being attacked. Um, so I expected that to be a more central part of our conversation. But what I found during the conversation was that uh, students really didn't talk about too many of those things until I raised them. And some of the students identified very strongly and said, you know, this is a time when we all have to get up and stand up. And I've been very engaged and I do whatever I can to advocate for my community. But then other students said, you know what, I'm just so beaten down by the politics of the moment. I try not to pay attention to it because it's so depressing. I don't consider myself to be politically radical. I'm just trying to live my life. And I think that that's one of the things that I try to point out in the book is, uh, I think that because we have had the benefit of uh, so many strong black political figures. I mean, you look at the queer black women who founded Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and others. Um, we've had so many examples in recent history of queer black folk who have stepped to the forefront in this political moment. But that doesn't mean that all queer black folk are feeling like radically politicized right now. And it was a real wake up call for me to speak with these students who, um, you know, I think stereotypically we think college students are gonna be very politically involved, very politically aware. Um, and some of them were, but many of them were really trying to kind of protect themselves by taking a step back and thinking about politics less. So they don't try to educate their peers. Well, it's interesting because they do, you know, uh, in their lives on campus, um, they do feel a responsibility to, at the very least, educate their peers and sometimes staff and faculty about their experiences and um, terminology and, and vocabulary, things of that nature. Uh, but they don't really consider those acts to be political in sort of a grand sense. Do you know what I mean? It's like on campus, they, they really do feel a pressure to be advocates for themselves, but they don't really see themselves as pol that, that kind of activism as politics with a capital P. Um, so there was this sort of odd um, disconnect between the lives they were living on campus, which were sort of more socially and politically engaged. Uh, that part of their experience did not necessarily reflect a broader public engagement with national politics as things were happening on the ground. I got the feeling from your book that despite the gains, the gains of the LGBTQ plus rights movement, many of the most harmful stereotypes and threats to black queer safety continue to haunt this generation of students. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I mean, the first way to think about this is, um, you know, Black queer folk are both black and queer, right? So sometimes the discrimination and prejudice they face operates mostly along the lines of race. Sometimes it operates mostly along the lines of gender and sexuality. And sometimes there's an intersection or an overlapping where the discrimination and prejudice really feels like a combination of racism and homophobia or racism and transphobia. But it's important to point out this first point, right, which is that um, so many of their day-to-day -day experiences are shaped by the social experiences of, uh, of being the social experience of being a black person in America, which is a visible social marker that black folk that we live with, right? So, uh, the experience of being uh, treated, uh, followed, or followed around by police, stereotyped, 
if you're going shopping, ignored in social situations, uh, assumed to have uh, less to contribute, whether it's at work or at school, all of those things are still happening just along the lines of race for so many of these students, right? So even in a time when we can point to a great deal of progress when it comes to LGBTQ rights, um, that experience of racism uh, doesn't necessarily follow the same trajectory. And so there was a great deal of pessimism, really, about the future for all black folks in this country. Well, we mentioned skin tone. But what about the fact that some gay people, some gay men are more feminine, some gay women are yeah. more masculine? Um, how much does that affect the way people interact with them? Absolutely. It's a great question. I think we have to understand that whether we're talking about queer social spaces or straight cisgender social spaces, uh, femininity and feminists is often devalued. Uh, we see this intuitively, right? If you look at, you know, the, the wage gap between men and women in this country, which has <laughs> been in place for generations and generations and is closing, but closing very slowly. It's not closing at the same rate when it comes to uh, uh, black women as it is for, for white women, for example. Uh, so you look at all the kind of institutional factors there. Um, there are all kinds of ways that femininity is, is devalued. And I think that particularly when it comes to gender performance, right, the performance of masculinity or maskness is viewed as an aspiration toward kind of dominance and control. And the performance of femininity or feminist is often viewed as an acquiescence toward weakness. Right. And that, that kind of stereotyping as femininity or feminist as weak, that's pervasive. It's pervasive whether we're talking about uh, straight space, straight to gender spaces or, 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 or queer spaces. And um, when you look at, for example, the plight of uh, black trans women and the ways they've been subject to, to violence over the past few decades and the, the lack of attention given to that story. I mean, that's something that my students picked up on uh, right away was... Uh, they felt like uh, black trans women in particular are among the most vulnerable uh, populations that we have in this country right now. So, so again, the point is that gender performance does matter because the stereotypes of masculinity and femininity, uh, they're really pervasive across both straight cisgender spaces and, and queer spaces. And they can go back way before these people go to college. I remember oh, yes. a very, I remember a very effeminate boy uh, in my public school in the fifth grade, and people used to say, "Will you be my girlfriend?" and make fun of him. And I, I you know, I always wondered how much of an impact was that having on him, and uh, how much pain was it causing him. On the other hand. Oh. He didn't try to look more masculine in response. Right, right. I, I mean, look, you know, these experiences with bullying, um, they cut across racial and ethnic lines in this country and they cut across national lines. Um, and did they occur uh, in colleges as well? Or is well, we it don't, only... yeah, that's the thing is, you know, I, I, my, the students in the book, didn't really talk about that as part of their daily experience. Mm -hmm. For the most part, honestly, they felt as though they were uh, left alone, but not necessarily valued in the same way, right? I mean, and that's, a, that's the thing. And, and again, I think it's really important to call out again, the students that I spoke with in the book are students who already felt comfortable identifying as queer in some respect. So there's a whole bunch of students that didn't make it into the book, right? And I think what we need to, under, what we need to understand is we're seeing a slice 
of a much bigger pie, right, in this book. We're seeing a slice of folk who have begun to reconcile, begun or advance in the process of coming into their life as a member of the queer community. But there are a whole bunch of other folk, and maybe that's the folk who are experiencing more of the bullying, who, who aren't there yet and, and may not get there in college, and that's okay. Um, but, but I think we need to take, take this with some caution because the fact that these students didn't report hmm. a kind of constant bullying doesn't mean that it isn't continuing to happen. Did they talk about the things that we read about regularly in news stories about the rights for same-gender people to marry and health care providers being threatened for providing trans-affirming health care? Also that 33 out of the 50 states still allow for black people to lose their livelihoods because of their hair texture and styles? Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, there were a few political issues that did come up more than once in some of the conversation. You know, I think the gay, the gay marriage question, which of course is under attack again now, mm -hmm. um, uh, I think the gay marriage question was one that people pretty frequently could point to as a sign of demonstrable pro progress when it came to LGBTQ plus rights in this country, right? Um, some of the other things uh, around uh, gender-affirming care, whether it's for trans folk or other folk, other members of the LGBTQ plus community. That one didn't come up as much. It, I guess it wasn't maybe at the front of mind at the time. You know, the major things that people were concerned with were things like immigration. I mean, if you think about the Trump administration's position and rhetoric on immigration mm -hmm. in this country, that was a huge one. Police violence, right? That was another one. And look, police violence is an issue that affects the LGBTQ plus community in myriad ways. I mean, both violence uh, at the hands of police, uh, violence within the prison system, which overlaps with a medical concern uh, within, the, within the prison system. So those are the kinds of things that were really front of, front of mind as sort of top shelf political issues at the time that I was interviewing these students. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Michael P. Jeffries. His latest book, Black and Queer on Campus, from New York University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You write about the influence of the popular culture and, and, and Billy Porter in particular. How does that affect what we're discussing? I mean, Billy Porter is, a, is just a, such a fascinating figure to talk about. Um, in so many of his public statements about his, his own life, and in particular about his career, he has been very clear that his experience in the entertainment industry is not just as a gay man, but as a black gay man. And in talking about it in that way, with that specificity, right, even though so many doors have been opened for uh, gay men in show business, in particular, you know, he's a, he's a theatrical performer and an actor, um, he still consistently talks about uh, the ways that he wasn't able to portray characters or considered for roles um, that really allowed him to be uh, a sexual figure, to, uh, to demonstrate some kind of sexual positivity, to be a romantic role model in so many of the roles that he was chosen for. And he believes that it's because uh, black men aren't usually considered for those roles. They're not the kind of leading men, the heartthrob role. That's not the role that they typically get. Um, so, so Porter has always talked about the intersection 
of queerness and blackness when it comes to his career. And yet, because he's become such an incredible success story and a celebrity, uh, when there's reporting on him and media stories celebrate him, what I point to is the book is a pattern of talking about him as a transcendent figure, a pattern of talking about him as a trailblazer or a kind of fashion icon. But in talking about him in those generalized and de-racialized terms, they're almost kind of eliding the emphasis that he himself has put on race as something that has shaped his career. So what I try to show in the book is that the kind of pop cultural celebration of transcendent figures like Porter is beautiful in one way because they need the platform and are so deserving of the platform. But Porter himself has observed, right, that uh, oftentimes what gets left out of his story are the messages that he's trying to communicate about blackness. And the role that it plays for the respondent, for the students that I spoke with in the book is they really get a lot of value out of looking up to people that have made it who come from similar circumstances and express a similar gender identity and sexuality. So it's incredibly valuable to have people like mm. Laverne Cox and Billy Porter and Lena Waithe and to have uh, movies like Moonlight and Pariah. Uh, so many of the examples of pop cultural queer black greatness that we've had over the past decade, these are vital for the students in the book because they show success as a possibility and they see themselves on the big screen. And yet, right, we want to be careful, right, not to celebrate this kind of form of mm. success in a way that allows us to say, well, racism is no longer a concern or the fact that these queer figures are black doesn't really matter. We want to be able to hold all of the dimensions of these experiences in our mind at the same time. You say it's just as important to represent quiet black queer pride and contentedness. Yes, yes. Um, when we think about the pop cultural celebration of queerness, one of the first places our mind often goes is to examples of spectacular black queerness. Uh, hmm. Folks like RuPaul, folks like Billy Porter, et cetera. Hmm. And it's really important to understand that this legacy of black queer fabulousness has a long history in uh, black American cultural production and queer activism, right? Going back throughout the 20th century, uh, it's a rich history that black queer folk have really built from the ground up. So my book is not an argument against that history. What it does, what it shows in the conversations with students is that that mode of spectacular, fabulous black queerness is not the only way that queer black folk live their lives. There are also many mundane and ordinary elements and rhythms to, those, to their lives. And those mundane and ordinary, I call them queertidian, like quotidian, queertidian elements of their lives are just as important for their experiences. They find spaces for love and joy and friendship and community in the quiet and ordinary spaces of their life, just as they do in the more public and spectacular dimensions of their life. So I'm trying to show, I'm trying to reflect what the students told me in the book, which is that there are many different ways to be black and queer. Did uh, the people you speak to tend to gravitate toward certain 
areas uh, rather than others, uh, areas of study rather than others? And uh, did they have a sense of whether there would be jobs waiting for them after they got out of school? That's a great question. As a rule, no. I mean, I really spoke with students who were interested in so many different things. Some of them uh, were really interested in the entertainment industry because they saw that as a place where um, black queer folk could be uh, visible and proud and welcomed. And, and some of them, you know, aspired to be doctors. Some of them aspired to be uh, teachers, math teachers, right? So there really was no single area of study that came to dominate um, the conversation. Again, we're talking about a range of interests among these students and, uh, you know, a, a range of career paths that they, that they wanted to pursue. Uh, we're almost out of time. Are there any other things you think we should be addressing before we end this conversation? Well, one of the things that came up in the book, and we talked about it a little bit, was uh, the place of Black Lives Matter in, this, mm -hmm. in these students' lives. I yes. mentioned that uh, Alicia Garza, who's probably the you know, most formative, most important uh, uh, founder of the black, what we now know as the Black Lives Matter movement was a queer black woman. And from the very beginning, is a queer black woman. From the beginning, um, the leadership of Black Lives Matter has been explicit about it being a kind of intersectional movement that addressed not only police violence, but all the forms of violence, including gendered violence that black communities are subject to. And the students, very interestingly, didn't really see it as a movement that addressed the needs of queer black folk. They said that kind of over time, first of all, many of them didn't know that it was uh, founded by queer black folk. And over time, they felt that the image of the movement had really become intensely focused on police violence directed toward black folk and really uh, about police killings of unarmed black men, which is a much more limited way to think about what the kind of broad scope of the Black Lives Matter movement was supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about a challenge to the carceral state. It's supposed to be about a challenge to, um, you know, this that kind of uh, engineered black poverty that we've had in this country for generations and generations. Um, and it's supposed to be about affirming that all Black Lives Matter, that no matter how you identify within the black community, whether you're gay or straight, uh, rich or poor, your, black, your life is valuable and your life must be protected, honored, you, you deserve and you have the right to live with pride and dignity. And the students didn't really see this as a core part of what Black Lives Matter had accomplished. So I think that raises some really important questions going forward about the future of the movement and about what inclusivity in black liberation movements uh, can look like. Because these students, to me, uh, you know, they were they're at the right age to be deeply attached and connected to this social movement, the most oh, important well, social movement of, of my life. And yet that connection somehow wasn't quite as strong as I thought it would be. One of your books is Paint the White House Black, Barack Obama and the Meaning of Race in America. He was elected to two terms. Uh, in just a minute or so, can you tell me why we don't seem to have progressed very far since then? Well, you know, look, the, the problems uh, that black folks have to deal with are institutionally rooted. Institutionally rooted. That means that no matter, you know, you can have leaders and people who cycle into and out of roles within these institutions. 
But without a commitment to institutional change, we're going to continue to see the same sort of inequality when it comes to uh, home ownership and wealth. We're going to continue to see the same sort of inequality when it comes to black maternal health. We're going to continue to see the same sorts of inequality when it comes to police violence and incarceration. Because you can have a, a leader who would like to see things go a different way, but you have to unmake the processes, the rules, the regulations of these institutions, whether it's a medical institution, our policing and carceral institution, our uh, housing institutions, that's the level at which change needs to happen. If we think we're gonna have one transformative figure who's gonna reverse hundreds of years of institutional inequality, we're kidding ourselves. Well, we have so to leave it there, unfortunately. Uh, What's that? Thank you. We have to leave it there. But my yeah. great thanks to you, Michael P. Jeffries, his book, Black and Queer on Campus, from NYU Press. If you would like to take a class with him, he teaches at Wellesley, right? Uh, yes. And thank you so much. That brings us to the end of our show. Our great thanks to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners um, who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI. Because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content. Information you don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Black and Queer on Campus. So give us that call now. Show us your support. Also, I hope you'll consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Either way, uh, you uh, will, uh, I hope you'll make that call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We uh, don't take ads. We don't take foundation grants. We are totally tax deductible, but we're the only radio station in New York dial that's 100% listeners sponsored. We hope you can join us again on next Tuesday when my guest will be Ronald Gruner discussing his new book, We the President. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.